I'm Corinne Linz, and you're listening to Infraintelligence, a podcast from Renew Canada magazine. There's no question that Canada's climate is changing. We need look no further back than just the last few months to see evidence of extreme weather. Flooding, snowmageddon, and unseasonable temperatures are quickly becoming the norm. And each of these weather events threatens the infrastructure that allows all of us to go about our day-to-day lives. Roads, bridges, buildings, water supply, and transmission lines, they are all at risk. I recently had the great privilege to sit down with a panel of industry experts to discuss what's necessary to increase the climate resilience of the infrastructure supporting Canadian communities. It was an interesting conversation that weighs the priorities between new builds and refurbishments and ultimately looks at the need for a whole-of-society integrated approach to building safer, more resilient communities. Today's podcast is brought to you by Actual Media, the creative agency, publisher, and event specialist for Canada's water, infrastructure, and environment industries. Visit actualmedia.ca to see a complete lineup of services, capabilities, and brands. And today, we're kicking off 2022 with a focus on disaster-resilient infrastructure. We have an impressive lineup of speakers joining today's conversation, but before I jump in and introduce them, I would like to take a few moments to acknowledge the many First Nations and Indigenous peoples of Canada as the original stewards of this great country. I'm here in Toronto, which is located on the traditional territory of many nations, including the Mississaugas of the Credit, the Anishinaabeg, the Chippewa, and the Haudenosaunee, and of course the Wendat peoples. We all share in the responsibility of our natural infrastructure, and there is much we can learn from the traditional knowledge of the land, water, and materials that allow us to build projects that benefit all Canadians. All right, so let's meet our experts. First up, we have Quentin Chiodi from Matrix Solutions. Hello, Quentin. Good morning. Then we have John Gamble from the Association of Consulting Engineering Companies. And then next up, we have Elise Perret from WSP. And then we have Ryan Ness with the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices. All right, we will start with you, Quentin. Can you please uh, give us your introduction, who you are, where you're from, and what perspective you're bringing to today's conversation? Sure thing. Um, I am the practice lead for climate risk at resiliency at Matrix Solutions. I've been working in the uh, space of climate risk now for almost 30 years, uh, from uh, being an academic to working with the federal government, Environment Canada, uh, working for the not-for-profit sector in the environmental movement, also working for the province uh, and in the uh, private sector and Prior to joining Matrix Solutions, I was the subject matter expert for climate risk and resiliency at Metrolinx, uh, which is Canada's uh, largest regional transit agency. And I must say that I learned more about climate risk and, and infrastructure in the seven years that I was actually working at Metrolinx than they had in all the other positions that I've had. So I'll be bringing a very broad focus uh, or broad scope rather to this discussion but certainly drawing upon my um, 30 years of experience. Fantastic, thank you. All right, John, you're up next. Well, well thank you, Corinne. And uh, yes, I'm John Gamble. I'm the president and CEO of the uh, of ACC Canada. We are a national business association. It represents about 400 companies that offer professional engineering and other scientific and management services. Um, private sector, We uh, our members uh, consult to both public and private sectors. And in many cases, they're around the front leading edge of uh, addressing some of these climate change issues and resilience issues. Uh, Where I'm coming from is, first of all, 
the entire supply chain, right from the owner through to the contractors and everyone involved, we have to have the adult decision about how resilient is resilient enough, how safe is safe enough. And then we also have to align our business models, our procurement models, our contractual arrangements and our risk sharing to align with the public policy objectives of being able to um, address and mitigate climate change. Perfect, thank you. All right, Elise. So Elise Prey, I'm based in Roslyn, BC in the interior. Um, I work as a national practice lead for climate risk and resilience at WSP Canada um, in a national team. Uh, and we serve federal government, uh, provincial, territorial, municipal sector, but also the private sector in developing solutions for uh, risk and resilience based on infrastructure and natural uh, and built environment. Um, my background is in engineering. I've spent the past 20 years uh, doing design and construction, uh, mostly in the municipal sector, but a little bit of highways work, uh, and uh, have been in the, the risk and resilience sector for, for about the past decade. Um, so I'd say that the I, I can bring many perspectives to the discussion. Um, I definitely focus sometimes in on the details and the codes and standards and the engineering perspective. Um, but my team provides that multidisciplinary uh, perspective to, to providing solutions. I'm looking forward to, uh, to the discussion with the panelists. Great, thank you. All right, Ryan, up to you. Good morning, everyone. Ryan Ness, I'm the Director of Adaptation Research at the Canadian Institute for Climate Choices. Uh, we are uh, an independent climate research centre formed by the federal government to advise governments across Canada uh, on the difficult policy solutions that need or policy decisions that need to be made uh, in pursuit of Canada's climate goals, both uh, addressing greenhouse gas emissions and on adapting to climate change. Uh, before I joined the Institute about two years ago, I, I worked for many years for the Toronto Region Conservation Authority, where I was the uh, lead of climate programs towards the end of my tenure. Uh, uh, and I'm an engineer by background uh, and have worked uh, on climate impacts and adaptation for about 15 years now, um, with now a policy focus, but previously with a very much detailed focus on impacts to water and drainage and, and stormwater uh, in, in my role at the, the Conservation Authority. Um, I'm, I'm interested to bring today sort of a perspective uh, from a high level of, of what governments uh, are doing and could be doing better to enable uh, the development of disaster and climate resilient infrastructure. Um, and we recently put out a, a paper on, on just this subject, so the high level uh, assessment of what the cumulative impacts of climate change to Canada's infrastructure might mean in terms of our economic future um, and and some of the big policy moves that, that governments can and make and should be thinking about. Thank you. All right, We've got lots to talk about, so let's jump on in. Um, Canada's climate's clearly changing. We don't need to look much further back than the last couple months to see evidence of extreme weather, extreme temperatures, floods, snowstorms. Each of these weather events bring with them different risks for roads, buildings, water supply, ports, transmission lines, all of the all of the key important stuff that keeps us all communicated and able to move across the country. So today we're here to talk about what's required to increase the climate resilience of the infrastructure supporting Canadian communities. Um, I'm thinking perhaps the best place to start is by looking at what the risks are to our various types of existing infrastructure, 
when the panel and I met earlier uh, this week to prep for today's session, I asked them which infrastructure was at greatest risk. Was it roads, bridges, buildings, water supply, et cetera? They all kind of shifted in their seats a little and looked a bit awkwardly at me. Uh, and then they told me, well, it depends. Uh, and that's then we went on and talked about it for about another 45 minutes or so. So I think that's probably as good a place as any to start. Um, so I'm going to pose the question again, a little differently this time. What infrastructure is most at risk? Is there a priority on where we should start in terms of building transportation or water? Or how and why does it depend? Uh, who would like to leap in here on this one? Sure, I, I, happy to start. Um, and as you say, Corinne, it really does depend on your your frame of reference and your criteria in determining what is what is most important. Uh, but certainly, we can uh, look at the intersection between which which types of infrastructure and infrastructure systems are most critical for uh, our country's economy and for the well-being of people in the country, um, and the types of, of climate hazards that we're going to be experiencing in the future. So we. We know that um, flooding, wildfire, um, more extreme uh, storm events are, are going to be some of the primary hazards for, for infrastructure in terms of disasters. Um, and those intersect with um, transportation infrastructure frequently that gets that gets flooded out or impacted by, by changing temperatures as well in a less disaster oriented kind of way. But, um, Transportation very much front and center. Uh, we have we have housing and buildings that are are very sensitive to a variety of uh, climate related risks and hazards that are going to grow in the future, and and obviously those have a, a significant bearing on the quality of, of people's lives and as well as on the the, the success of business. Um, and and we have our other critical infrastructure: telecommunications, um, electricity systems, especially which will be built out to support a net zero economy, potentially creating even more infrastructure at, at risk if, if not uh, designed properly. So I think in a nutshell, it's important, and, and you know, my, my word should not be taken as gospel, but the country needs to look at those intersections between the climate that we're going to experience in the future and the types of, of infrastructure that are both sensitive to that and that really underpin economy and quality of life in this country. I'll, I'll jump in. I'll jump in here if you don't mind. And Ryan sort of touched on this when talking about intersections. It's not a case of one or the other. Infrastructure is all interconnected. The municipal infrastructure is almost an ecosystem unto itself. The risk is the weakest link in the chain, and that's where we have to start. Um, if we, you know, if, if, we, if we can access, if we can't access a site, we don't have supply chains that cascades into other issues. If we don't have potable water. You don't have health and safety issues. You can't get power. Maybe the water treatment plant doesn't work or it only works for a limited time. So it's not a case of choosing which assets we have to focus on. We have to look holistically at the suite of infrastructure assets and then prioritize on that basis. And in fact, going forward, and we talked about this in preparing for this, when we go forward, we have to recalibrate so we're not looking at infrastructure investment or, or deferred maintenance on an asset by asset, project by project basis, we have to look at asset management plans in their entirety. We have to look at how these things are interconnected. And then we have to look at how different infrastructure assets from different communities are interconnected. It doesn't help you a lot to do flood control if, if the community upstream hasn't done a whole lot about it either. So we've really got to look at this more holistically. 
Yeah, and and I would add to that that as as we have been looking at, at increasing uh, the resilience of infrastructure on a project by project basis, we've run that risk of creating islands of resilience where you might have one site that's doing great, uh, which actually has detrimental impacts to to neighboring sites. And so I think it's also really important that we think about some of our vulnerable pop- vulnerable populations, which may be more. Um, located in some of these floodplain areas um, that have been historically less expensive to build in um, and and that really just don't have the ability to to respond or go to somebody else's place during a, um, a big flood event. Um, and, and also I'd like to bring in our, our natural nature solutions um, and not overbuilding infrastructure um, to try to come up with solutions. You know, I think that as we saw uh, with the flooding in the lower mainland here in BC this fall, is that nature kind of took over where it used to be. Uh, you know, Sumas Lake was a lake, and we decided to try to control it with a dam and pump stations. And and what happened during that disaster? It became a lake again. And so I think that as we're looking at systemic land use planning, we should also be thinking about where is, what is the consequence of failure, and where is it going to fail if it does? Okay, I'll just uh, try to uh, jump in and, and pull some of these threads together. Um, I would say that, uh, from my perspective, uh, you know, recognizing that the issue is is cross cutting, and I think for those who operate um, or responsible for municipalities or or individual companies in the private sector, that you recognize that the issue uh, really crosses um, your existing assets, as John had um, pointed out in terms of uh, asset management. Uh, there's also the issue of new infra- uh, new design, new infrastructure, so design standards, um, and how do you address climate risks within that context, and then on the operations and the, and the maintenance side. So it's, it's, it really depends where your focus is, recognizing that all of these things are connected. Uh, and I think as John pointed out, there's always the, the weakest link that is, is problematic and then causes cascading effects uh, when, these, uh, when these disasters occur. But I, I would also add that, well, you know, I think I, I agree with, uh, with Ryan that water is probably the most uh, significant uh, climate risk uh, for the country as a whole. Um, you can't ignore the fact that there are many aspects of climate change that will have um, uh, impacts on their own right. And then of course the interconnections between them, as we found out in BC, it was largely a a sequence of heat dome, of drought, of fires. And then months later with a lag, you know, with that scorched landscape, with the vegetative cover removed, the uh, precipitation had exacerbated the, or was exacerbated by the uh, lack of vegetative cover to cause those washouts and floods. Thank you. Wow, there's so much there I want to tackle. Um, I think first I'm going to start with, It's it strikes me that obviously this integrated approach, I mean, all of these areas, they're integrated, we need to work together, it's all connected. But it's, I'm still curious to know, like, where do you start? What is the, you know, what is the jumping off point? I mean, does everybody need to get together collectively and decide on, on that approach? Or, you know, where can we start on all of this? I'm, I want to break it down also in terms of, um, 
you know, new built, new infrastructure, and then also, of course, existing infrastructure. But maybe where do we start is the first place. Who has to make this tough decision on, you know, which infrastructure we focus on first? I mean, or is it coming up with a larger policy level type thing before anything even starts, you know, before the, we start putting shovels in the ground? I would suggest coming up at that that grand policy level. Um, both Ryan and I have been contributing to the national adaptation strategy, at least for the advisory table on the natural and built environment. And what we're finding out there is, again, there's intersections between all of the other advisory tables. And I think to have this transformational goal in the medium term, set a goal. Are we going to have resilient communities in the future? Are we going to allow communities to lag behind? Um, I, again, I don't think that it is one piece of infrastructure. I think that it is definitely um, systems that we're looking at um, and and supporting um, uh, the development of those systems. And that comes from a, a bunch of different perspectives. You know, like personally, I look at it from a codes and standards. As an engineer, I would like to be told that the box is changing because you typically, you know, design within a with within a, a certain set of parameters and sometimes you only actually have influence over that project that you're working on um, and so the way that i look at it is that unless that high level um, strategy changes you're not going to get to that detailed level and it's and the details are not going to actually be that effective i think i think that's a great it's a great point that, that Lisa is making. I mean, we've seen um, a decade or more of sort of bottom-up effort by municipalities and other local actors trying to move the the resilience yardsticks on their own without really a supportive kind of national vision or or provincial level vision frequently or or system of of, of policies to support that that activity. So I think. It's a, it's a, to your question, Corinne, it's a nested thing. Um, definitely priorities need to be set nationally, provincially and regionally, and, and then locally. But I think that we're seeing that big gap uh, nationally and provincially at this stage, identifying what what is the infrastructure that is most important to prioritize both existing and potential future uh, infrastructure. And then what are the, what are the tools uh, that those governments need to put into place to be able to, to advance uh, resilience and adaptation when it comes to that infrastructure, uh, as well as what can they do to enable the actors like municipalities um, that are going to be responsible for deploying most of this infrastructure and building building much of it as well. So uh, I, I think it, it multi-level, but the, the top uh, of the hierarchy really needs a lot of work. Yeah, in that vein, uh, one specific area where we could make a, I think would have a very positive impact is changing our approach to how we fund infrastructure. Typically even with the cost sharing models, it's a project by project application. And it's a bit of a beauty contest and people evaluate and, 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 and you know climate lenses and community benefits and whatever else. Because infrastructure is integrated and because we need to take a long-term holistic view, why are we not leveraging the asset management plans that the federal government does support, that most provinces support, and most municipalities have bought into? Why do we not address infrastructure funding on the basis of the asset management plans? So instead of saying, I've got, over the next 30 years, I have 10 projects I'd like to execute, and then you'll get in the queue each year, and you put in your application, you may or may not get it. 
why can we not tailor the funding philosophy to we commit to support X percent of your asset management plan over the following several years. And as long as the municipality continues to follow that asset management plan, or if they, they have the changes they made, as long as that's sort of kept transparent, that's the way to approach it. So we don't end up where, hey, we got funding to resurface our road a year later. Oh, we've got funding for our active transportation. Let's tear up the new road surface. And then some year after that, oh, we've got new storm sewers. Let's rip up the active transportation, the road surface, and put in our stormworks. We need a more holistic, longer term. Most municipalities have bought into it. Why do we not leverage it? With the asterisk and caveat that we will still need, in some cases, to, to allow applications for individual projects, but we need to shift our focus more holistically in leveraging asset management plans. And that makes good sense even if we didn't have resilience issues. John, if I can just jump in, um, you know, I think there's merit in terms of a overall national or provincial strategy. And I think, uh, you know, those of us on this panel would all be in agreement with the need for that. That being said, um, you know, extreme weather and, and evidence of climate change has been around for a while. It just isn't this past year where all of a sudden, you know, perhaps with the BC situation, people have jumped up and said, oh my goodness, this is climate change. But I've been at this for 30 years. And if you go back to uh, the Calgary floods in 2013, the floods in Toronto in, in 2013, my former position was created largely because of a, a GO train that was underwater <laughs> and an ice storm that had uh, taken out um, you know, some of the, uh, the uh, electrical power. So, you know, I think we, we tend to be a reactive society. And if we wait around uh, until we hit over the head and we realize, oh, my goodness, we really have to uh, take climate change into account because our infrastructure is at risk, uh, that's a very dangerous position to take. So I think we need to be much more proactive, whether or not it's municipalities, as John said, as mandated in terms of their asset management planning, or within the private sector, be proactive. Um, you know, you you are going to be uh, held accountable by your shareholders and others in terms of demonstrating your uh, climate risks, whether or not it's from a, a, a transitional perspective on emissions or your physical risks. So I think we, we need to um, take action now, uh, do perhaps more emphasis on uh, carrying out climate risk assessments and, and better understand what those risks are before we wait for someone else to solve the problem. Yeah, that's an excellent and point. Touching in on that funding point too, though, John, is and and also with, um, with the way that projects are funded is that it's cost sharing at the beginning. Um, and so there is a typically a municipal or owner, uh, provincial and federal component to funding capital projects. But then it's left to the municipalities or, or the owners to, to maintain them. And so often what is done is just to code or just to standards because you want to reduce your costs at the capital stage as much as possible, or at least there's incentive to do so. But who comes in when there's a disaster? The feds bring in the military, the feds bring in all sorts of, of disaster relief funding. And so there isn't an owner incentive to take on a or there is an owner incentive to take on additional risk at, at the project development level compared to um, building for some disaster that 
may never happen, but could be catastrophic. That's an outstanding point because the upper levels of government will have us believe that the cost sharing for infrastructure is one third, one third, one third, or whatever the formula is. But if you actually consider the life cycle of assets, 90% of the cost of most assets, if not more, is the operation and maintenance over the design life. So if you actually look at the total cost of owning infrastructure, it's not one third, one third, one third. It's more like 3%, 3%, and 94% borne by the municipalities. If you look at the light, and, and that's an excellent point. And um, we need, we need, and we need to have again one of those adult discussions about who steps up. I mean, we haven't even we haven't even gotten a, a suitable solution for deferred maintenance, let alone disaster resilience or, or disaster mitigation. And at least it's highlighting sort of the the lack of the right incentives being in place or the right policies being in place to to and the right funding to be in place to allow infrastructure owners to actually um, build that risk into the life cycle of the asset. And that that sort of comes back to what I was saying. And as Quentin pointed out, we've known that climate change was going to impact infrastructure for at least 30 years. Um, and, and technically, you would think that it, it is in an infrastructure owner's best interest to take that risk into account and build it into both the, the design and the operations of that infrastructure. But we know that that isn't happening. I mean, BC is just the latest example of the fact that it is not. So that we need to think about the system of of, of all sort of the incentives and resources that are going into infrastructure, I think if we're going to change away from that um, that moral hazard issue that Elise is talking about, the willingness to take on risk up front. Yeah, and, and I think that when you're dealing with climate change and the fact that there are many possible outcomes, mostly from a um, you know policy perspective and what governments uh, or countries are able to do in terms of achieving their emission targets, uh, when you look at the array of, of possible outcomes and the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, you know, is coming out with their, their latest assessment reports. Um, and we won't get into the technical aspects of the different scenarios, but we could be looking at 1.5, which personally, I think we've we've already passed that, that stage. Uh, two degrees, which is, you know, the primary focus of the Paris Agreement and the COP meetings in Glasgow. And I, I think it's, I think for the most part, our likelihood of achieving that is extremely small. Uh, so then what are we looking at? So, you know, beyond 2030, you're looking at 2.6, 2.7, or maybe as high as three and a half or four degrees. And how that global change translates to your particular region, you know, at, at, the, at the local scale, could be in a country like Canada, um, catastrophic. So, you know, I think how do you then design infrastructure with all of those uncertain futures, you have to really apply a, a, a risk lens uh, to this process and start thinking about what those possible outcomes are, understand what your risk tolerance is, um, rely, as uh, Elise had said, natural infrastructure and natural assets uh, as part of your response uh, and recognize that the unexpected is likely to happen. Yeah, well, for, for over a century, we used historical data in, for most cases to design our infrastructure. And of course, with the change being A, rapid, and B, very uncertain, we now have to get into more predictive models, into scenario planning. And with that is going to be, we're going to have to rethink the risk sharing that goes with this. Because it's one thing to point at a table that's compiled over many decades. 
But if those have gone out the window, and we are now sort of having to use our crystal balls, informed crystal balls, modeling, and all these other sound approaches, we have to have a new and frank discussion about how risk gets shared. And it's got to be risk sharing, not just risk transfer. Which, you know what, John, you just got me thinking again about our discussion on procurement and, and sharing of risk in different types of procurement um, uh, processes. Um, you know, Quentin and I were, were working together um, on the Union Station project where it was an alliance model that was delivering. So you've got the engineer, the owner and the contractor all working together in a kind of design build um, uh, partnership. Um, but but we're all having those discussions up front so that that you get the different perspectives. Who is best to take on that risk? Who is best to understand it? And so that it's not a document that comes out and then somebody responds to it, um, is that you're really looking into those partnerships. And I think that you could probably provide um, a little bit more um, um, information on, on how procurement can actually influence the resilience of, of infrastructure projects. That's right. And a delivery model is only as effective as the procurement used to do it. And unfortunately, not in all cases, but much of public procurement is very focused on saving money in the short term. Often there's political pressure to say that the government must appear to save money regardless of the cost. And it's, <laughs> it's tough enough to actually address true life cycle costs under the best of circumstances, let alone trying to address for disaster. And having a downward uh, pressure on price just so you can save money on the design so that you can throw it over the fence to a contractor who's going to try and get the price down lower again. And again, our friends at the municipality end up holding, holding the bag when you don't achieve the design objectives, when you have reduced life cycle, you have substandard materials. It all might be compliant with the drawings. Everyone might have fulfilled their contract, but the philosophy of procurement too frequently is viewing the design, the planning, to be a cost to be minimized rather than treating it as an investment to be leveraged. Thank you. We have a number of questions rolling in here. Okay, so who pays for resilience? Governments are often on the hook to provide financial assistance when disaster strikes, but if a private owner builds on a floodplain, are they not liable? Where do taxpayers and insurance companies draw the line? Who wants to start? I'm, 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 not, I'm not sure if there's anyone on the panel who uh, has the... Um, knowledge to answer that, but I was on a session yesterday on emergency management and business continuity planning. And one of the uh, uh, speakers had talked about the gaps, of course, uh, from the private uh, insurance in terms of um, flood risk and um, pay, uh, payouts. And the fact that the federal government, as you've noted, has been, um, you know, uh, th those costs have been increasing. Uh, so it's better understanding through, you know, looking at nationally um, flood mapping and then trying to come up with a, a mechanism to protect Canadians who fall between the cracks and are not eligible for, um, for um, uh, flood insurance. But I think part of the problem is, 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 you know, we have a legacy of poor planning, poor land use planning, as Lise was chatting about earlier. Uh, some provinces are ahead of the game, but other provinces and other parts of provinces are still at uh, considerable flood risk. So to, to, to what Quentin was saying and the, the question of sort of responsibility for, um, for recovering after a, a disaster, for example, both the public and, and, and private actors, and, and Quentin was, was talking about this, how, how our, our, our system of insurance and, and relief is sort of 
broken. Um, most of the people that were affected by the BC floods, for example, most of the people whose homes were flooded could not get flood insurance um, because it's just it's not available uh, in Canada from private insurers in areas that are actually at high risk of, of flooding. And the insurers are, are not stupid. They're not going to get themselves in a situation where they have to pay out more than they can possibly take in in terms of premiums. It just doesn't make sense for, for their model. Um, so, um, like like Lisa was saying, the, the, the government, often the federal government matched by the provinces, steps in um, to help with recovery, whether it's public infrastructure or private assets that are impacted by disasters. Um, the, the government tends to step in because it's politically a good move. And I mean, those people are, are genuinely uh, up the creek, as it were, uh, with no kind of source of, of financial support to be able to, to to rebuild other than than governments providing this disaster relief. But what it does is it it perpetuates this this cycle of building things, building infrastructure, building homes uh, in, in areas of risk. There's nothing to nudge things in the right direction because there's this backstop that is felt that can be, be relied upon. So whether it's, uh, you know, substandard municipal infrastructure that's not taking climate risk into account, or whether it's a home built in a, in a floodplain, um, there, there aren't the right package of, of, of nudges, of incentives, of regulations, of policies to, to move things uh, in the right direction. And one more thing, I guess, on that, though, Quentin pointed out as well, we just we often don't know where these these risks exist. Um, flood mapping, which should be one of the most fundamental products that exist in a country that that, this, that help you understand where one of your biggest climate risks um, is, is going to affect people, is is out of date, is incomplete uh, in Canada. It doesn't reflect climate change. Um, half a million people in, in Canada who are probably at risk of flooding won't find themselves on any flood map uh, anywhere. And that's flood mapping is the best source of climate related risk information we have. Forget about hailstorms and wildfires and, and wind and tornado. So, uh, you know, that's another piece of the equation that that's missing here if we're actually going to get people to, to build things in the right way and in the right places. Yeah, absolutely. People, private assets and public assets for that matter, are built in hazardous areas, flood or otherwise, because someone allowed them to. And that's an absence of information, and it's information that's evolving. And 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 with particular case of the watersheds, that's really got to be the federal government because watersheds don't care about municipal boundaries, they don't care about provincial boundaries, and they sure don't, and they don't care about as we saw with the flooding in the Lower Mainland in BC, they don't care about international boundaries. So the obvious place for that to sit and the responsibility should be with the federal government. That's only one small piece, though, of allowing the private sector. And by private sector, I just don't mean corporate Canada, but I also mean homeowners and so forth. They need to make informed decisions. And they're relying on the government's regulatory regime and their resources to make good faith decisions. And if we have those, we have to build the risk sharing around that. But we'll never get quite clear of the need for for the government and public money to step in in extreme, extraordinary cases that could not be reasonably foreseen. All right, uh, lots of questions rolling in. So as a first step, should we not look at one in 100 year event benchmarks for infra projects and calibrate or update those benchmarks that will provide a better footing for design? Yeah, I, I think we, in many cases, we do design for the, the one in 100 event. And, and when I say one in 100 year event, it's actually like, 
it, it means that there's a one percent chance that it'll happen in any given year. So the the probability is low, um, and and I think that what we have to do is look at is that is that magnitude of event actually going to happen more frequently? Um, you know, flood risk is typically done to a two hundred like a one in two hundred year event. Um, sometimes a one in five hundred year, depending on where you are, and so. It's not that all infrastructure is designed like that. And, and I don't know if it should be. Make potentially to look at, at what the risk, you do a sensitivity analysis and what does that look like if we were to do that. But I don't think putting a blanket um, number on it is, is actually the right way to go there. Yeah, yeah. We, have, we have the knowledge and the ability to design for climate resilience, that exists. The, the big question and the public policy question is the adult discussion about how resilient is resilient enough, how how safe is safe enough, and frankly, we're not we can't have a regulation for each and every eventuality. That's that's the very definition of red tape. We do need probably some benchmarks. We do need some guidance, um, and we just need and again, it all ties into risk. Um, you know, we can't you know we we can't make every resident a hundred percent earthquake proof. We can't make every site 100. Otherwise, we just don't have the economic capacity to do that. So we have to have an adult decision. How safe is safe? How much risk can we accept? And then how that risk gets allocated. And that's often the sticking point because politically, nobody thinks anything's going to happen on their watch. Yeah, and, and when I was at, uh, when I was with uh, Metrolinks, one of the things I admired was the fact that they took an approach that was essentially um, performance-based. So you're, you're trying to think about standards and design, um, uh, trying not to be too prescriptive because the solutions to dealing with climate risks and certainly from a water perspective is that it's, it's diverse. It could be you know, hard, a hard asset response. It could be green infrastructure and everything in between. So um, you know, I think as long as we recognize that the past is no indicator of the future, and that yes, a one in a hundred year event is an important standard from a water perspective to design to. As Elise pointed out, we know that uh, with climate change, that hundred year event could become a one in 50 year event. And in fact, the new hundred year event uh, is gonna be much higher. So, you know, going back to the notion of um, uh, building back better or, or building new smart, I think we need to have a a uh, good idea of what that future climate will be. Uh, and then I think it was John who pointed out, or Ryan, you know, it's really the risk tolerance eventually will determine where you land in terms of the design. And, and I do want to be clear that I don't believe that municipalities willingly have a lower risk tolerance or a higher risk tolerance. I think that they're actually being, you know, kind of pushed into it based on their ability to to pay for the life cycle of their infrastructure. And so you talk to anybody who's in municipal government or local government, they'll say, absolutely, we don't want our infrastructure to fail, but we only have this much funding. And so we're, and, you know, um, public perception of, uh, of infrastructure is, is not at the highest. Most people are looking for the things that beautify or, you know, let's have our arena um, updated so we can go play hockey or, you know, the things that, that most people think about. Infrastructure only actually comes to top of mind when you turn on the tap and the water doesn't come out or you can't flush your toilet or you can't access your home 
or you can't get on the highway. Like this is, you know, I just had um, the experience coming from the lower mainland. I was on vacation in November. I was driving through the lower mainland and could already see the farmer's fields like filled up with water. And, and then we got the big atmospheric river. I was back in the Kootenays by that time, up at a thousand meters outside of flood risk. But guess where all of our produce comes from? And we were effectively on an island, three highways connecting the interior to the lower mainland where our agricultural hub is, all of a sudden got cut off. So later that week, I go to the grocery store, no produce. <laughs> and it was it was shocking. Now the next week it came back and you know we definitely have some resilience in our systems here, but it's that emotional connection to risk. Um, and infrastructure and that, that people don't really think about it until it isn't there. And unless, except for us <laughs> you know, and, and people like us. Because infrastructure it, is exciting. It is. <laughs> it, it's, it's a great point, Elise, that it's, it's really hard to persuade a, a, a municipal decision maker, municipal politician to spend more money on a, a cost that may or may not occur uh, over their political lifetime or, you know, even over their, their actual lifetime. It's, it's until it becomes concrete, sort of the human brain doesn't prioritize these kinds of distant and abstract risks. Just one more thing I wanted to say as well about, yeah. about standards and um, for sort of climate risk is that there are some really smart people working on updating building codes and infrastructure standards uh, to reflect climate change at the Standards Council of Canada, at the National Research Council. Uh, but those processes are just so slow. Like they're just getting those rolling out now. They could take five years or more in the case of, of building codes, for example, to be sort of adopted uh, countrywide. Um, we just don't have enough time, it feels like. There's so much infrastructure being built. The, the net zero transition is going to accelerate the pace of many kinds of infrastructure development. Uh, something needs to be done about the, the glacial pace of, of those updates. Yeah, yeah, Corinne, with your with your indulgence, you started off on a question about the the shall we say the unevenness of um, of right. asset management plans and the capacity of municipals to provide them, and that is very important because again, it's a little bit of the weak link in the chain. And this is not a knock against municipalities that may not have as robust asset management plans. It's, it's really an issue about capacity. It's, it's an issue about the size and, and scope. And, and we need to support that. And, you know, up until about 10 years or so, the, the, the FCM and the National Research Council had a wonderful program called the National Guide to Sustainable, Sustainable Municipal Infrastructure also known as InfraGuide, and unfortunately was sacrificed uh, on the altar of uh, fiscal uh, constraint. Um, you know, there was the thought that, well, there should be a user fee for this. However, the municipalities that benefited the most were the ones that probably had the fewest resources. But that kind of establishment of best practices, that the, the ability to share information and share boldness is very powerful. And I think it very much aligns, even though it was, probably was not contemplated in the way it is today, but the objective of that program very much aligns with some of the things that need to happen to allow municipalities um, to 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 you know tackle their asset management plans to to do this planning and also giving municipal officials the ammunition they need when they need to press the upper levels of government for support so i would certainly and it's certainly something we as an association almost every budget consultation of the federal government we've been asking for the reinstatement of that program 
And you know, that's we need to, we need to we can't just say this is what you ought to do. We need to help and allow mm -hmm. the, that knowledge transfer. And yes, somebody posted here. It is available. It is on a virtual bookshelf. The Gathering Virtual Dust. Uh, <laughs> it is a good program, and it can use a refresh. It should be web-based, and we should expressly address the issues of climate resiliency and climate mitigation. If, if I could just uh, jump in again, I think one of the things that I have found over the years is that um, Canadians are, are reluctant to showcase and highlight their successes. And I think there's a lot of uh, creativity, innovation across the country where we are dealing with climate risks. Uh, and yet those stories, those examples are perhaps not um, being as shared or given the due credit that they, they, uh, they should. And, you know, somehow, you know, dealing with climate risks is a very sensitive topic uh, for some. Um, and, you know, I just think that there's a, a lot of good case studies out there uh, that we can learn from and, and may not cost a lot um, that are quite affordable and, and the benefits uh, that result could be very substantial. I'm just seeing a comment here from Mark about the, the support of the Standards Council of Canada and Infrastructure Canada aided recently by ECCC updates to model future climate change. CSA is updating many of its built infrastructure standards. Um, so one of those is the National uh, Bridge Code. Um, and um, that is starting to integrate it into many different ways. And it's a really interesting discussion um, because it's not clear cut as to how you take that information and then apply it to different kinds of climate loads, whether that be wind or, or uh, hydrotechnical aspects or uh, ice accretion, uh, temperature, all those types of things. Um, so I, I did want to also highlight another project that the STC is doing, and it's developing a guide on how to integrate climate data into different types of standards. Um, so that is in progress right now. But as, as Ryan mentioned, it's a, it's a slow process. The codes and standards world is, is definitely um, a, a slower process. Uh, and I think that it is really up to I see it as professionals and community members and community leaders um, and, and political leaders um, to really show that leadership. And because like, once you know, you, you can't unknow it. You know, if I, like I practiced in, in British Columbia, but I also practice in Northwest Territories in Nunavut and I practice in Ontario. And the way that I look at it is that there's a, there's a guideline that tells me how to practice engineering in terms of highway design in British Columbia. I can't in good conscience as a professional go to Ontario and not consider those same aspects, even though it is not a part of the regulations there. I would love to see if we can kind of divert this a little bit. I feel like we've talked at length, which I love about sort of the integration and what's needed to drive this. I wonder, are there any projects that we can look at as examples of, of things that are being done really well right now, whether it's refurbishments, new projects um, that are, or even it's whether it's the technology or maybe it is the policy development or that kind of thing. But I would love to know if there are places we can draw on for inspiration that are successfully um, making some good strides in terms of development of resilient infrastructure. Anybody got something they'd like to share? <laughs> I I'll, I'll just jump in because one of the uh, comments um, uh, that was just made regarding the case studies uh, that mm -hmm. are available through the federal government, the um, uh, Canadian Center for Climate Services, the uh, climatedata.ca uh, case studies, 
uh, here, ch uh, changingclimate.ca. Um, mm -hmm. And people can go there and 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 learn from uh, best practices that have been applied uh, in, in different parts of the country. Um, but I but I think that uh, you know there 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 are just so many that are out there, uh, and I and I know uh, many cases where there have been really good um, climate resiliency measures put in place, and yet they weren't highlighted. Like I, I see stories about, and I don't want to call out any individual uh, uh, site or, or specific infrastructure, but, but it's um, uh, exceptional design in terms of dealing with climate risk. And yet it isn't part of the narrative. And I think we need to have a stronger collective narrative that uh, climate risk is real, it's an important area, and, and how are we actually addressing it? Just to add to what Quinn was saying, I mean, it's, it's hard to write a news story about an area that didn't flood. <laughs> That's true. There's, there's a, the, a really interesting project in, in, in downtown Toronto on the mouth of the Don River where mm -hmm. uh, an entire sort of precinct was taken out of a, a zone of flood risk um, and it's now now been successfully developed um, and has not sort of come anywhere close to flooding uh, since that time. But how do you how do you say something sexy about that? Unfortunately, it's 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 hard to promote. From um, I'm sure Lisa and John will have some really good sort of um, project level examples. Just from a, a policy perspective, Corinne, to your question of, of positive developments. Um, I think that the, the 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 federal task force on flood insurance and relocation that that Quentin I think was was talking about earlier or alluded to is a, is an important step. It actually is looking into the um, sort of getting people off disaster assistance, as it were, um, and trying to create a system that that gives people that are in harm's way when it comes to flooding uh, an insurance lifeline that's separate from from disaster assistance. And that can be evolved over time to create incentives uh, to get people to to potentially uh, not rebuild or to protect their properties um, where they can. So there there are some some big policy moves like that that are happening at the federal level. I think that they could be uh, expanded. There's analogies in all kinds of different areas uh, where 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 the federal government and provincial governments could support municipalities in that respect. Yeah, I'll, I'll talk a little bit of some of the public policy. I'm, I'm always reluctant to sort of call, um, I love all my members equally and I, I, I don't want to uh, show favoritism one over the other. They all they're, they're all wonderful. Um, but um, one opportunity we have is the, the recently proposed national infrastructure assessment. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, taking not not the five. I mean, it, you know, kudos to Infrastructure Canada from going to a year over year to a five year, ten year, now twelve year window. But now we're talking in the range of thirty years. We're talking about much more comprehensive. And our hope is, if done correctly, because it can be a very powerful tool, um, just from the economic management of infrastructure, but it's also a very potentially a very powerful tool to address a lot of the resiliency and climate change issues if done correctly. And that will require some independence of the of the direction of the assessment. It's got to be pretty comprehensive at looking at the current state of our infrastructure. And there's a lot of work there. I've been on the advisory board for the Canadian Infrastructure Report Card. And of course, the very first one we did, the biggest conclusion was we need more asset management in this country. Um, but we need we need to get a handle of that federal assets, provincial assets, because they're all interconnected. 
we need to set a vision. We, you know, as Minister, former Minister McKenna talked about, we are we also building the right infrastructure? So we got to, and then we got to put together a little bit of a roadmap there, and then we've got to continually measure our progress. And I think this could be a powerful tool. And you know, and, and the government's made some strides. It seems to be a little bit stalled since the election, but I think this is something that's really worth investing in. And I think it's something that could be, be useful to all levels of government if done correctly. Anyone else like to jump in before we move on? We are down to our last six minutes here. So we probably have time for one more quick question. And then I would say a um, bit of a final thoughts kind of thing here. Let's see. Uh, in order to encourage municipalities to propose, build more resilient infrastructure, how could feds encourage this? And I think we talked about it a little bit. Are there any other ideas in terms of support, incentives, other encouragement? I would just offer, we, 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 we talk a little bit about um, user fees and cost recovery and things like that. And I think, there, I think I, I, you know, whether we subsidize costs for infrastructure, whether we distribute it from wealthier, that's a public policy, a broader public policy. But we really need to understand the true cost of our infrastructure, which I think gets glossed over. Uh, it's certainly not the price we're paying at the meter, at least in most cases. And we've got to build in that replacement cost, the self, some level of self-insurance. We've got to have an accurate picture of the life cycle if we can actually accurately assign the cost. Now, how it gets paid for is a broader public policy, whether it's individual users, blanket rates, subsidized rates, another discussion, but we need to get a handle on the real cost, including climate resilience. And I do want to actually congratulate the federal government in introducing the climate lens because you know, I've been working in design and construction pretty much my whole career. And it wasn't until the climate lens came out that it everybody's like, what is this thing? What is climate resilience? What am I doing? And then all of a sudden, I went from being a design and construction engineer to focusing my practice solely on climate risk and resilience and teaching people and building capacity within the industry to make this happen. So while it might not be perfect to do it on a project by project basis, it has really changed the language and and the discussions that are happening within the industry. And, and I think that that is one thing that they can do. They're also doing a lot of other things. They are providing better data that is in a format that is uh, understood better by practitioners. You know, like when I first started working, like it probably came in, I don't even, maybe like 12, 13 years ago, we started talking to climate scientists about the RX1 day and how is that going to help you to, uh, to design a, a stormwater system? It's not because we actually use IDF curves. You know, like having those multidisciplinary um, uh, perspectives come in has really, really helped provide a common language uh, between practitioners, which has advanced climate resilience. Thank you. All right, so as we're bringing in the home stretch here, uh, I have a big question. I'm going to ask you to answer it in you know one minute, <laughs> which is, what's it ultimately going to take to develop a whole of society integrated approach to build resilience of Canada's integrated infrastructure? And I think this is the same stuff that we started out with, kind of in the beginning. It, it needs to be that whole of society approach. Um, John, why don't we start with you, and then we'll just go around and give each of you about a minute. Uh, I'll take I'll take some political leadership, but what cultivates political leadership is political leaders knowing that we collectively, this community and the people participating, are behind them and support this. 
you know, a lot of the stuff we've talked about today would have made sense even if the planet wasn't on fire or underwater, depending where you are. <laughs> this stuff would have made sense anyways. But now we're into sort of crisis mode. And this is a this is a, an opportunity. Well, it's more than an opportunity because if we don't do it, we're, we're really up <laughs> the creek or underwater, down the creek or downstream or whatever. But um, I, I think, and, and by the way, compliments to the quality of the questions and comments that it came through. Um, you could have picked five people that have, from the registrants that you could have put them up here on the panel. But <laughs> I think we need to lean in. I think we've got to be very clear. We've got to carry the message and we've got to be consistent and let the politicians know that we've got cover fire for them if they move forward, because it won't be popular with everyone. Perfect, thank you. Elise, would you like to go next? I think that remembering that this is um, a complex problem that we're trying to resolve and that it takes a bunch of different perspectives um, to come up with really innovative solutions. And so ensuring that we keep the dialogue open uh, between different disciplines, um, from planners to engineers to ecologists to um, accountants and insurance professionals. You know, and I'm, I'm missing some, I know it. Uh, but, you know, making sure that we include all of those people at the table um, and having those open conversations. Great, thank you. And Ryan? Uh, there, there's there's so much that could be said about about this in response to that question. I'll, I'll just come back. I'll agree with everything my, my co-panelists have said, but also come back to the the idea that senior governments need to do more than they're doing to, to drive the, the practice of, of building disaster and climate risk into infrastructure. At least uh, cited a, a great example, the climate lens, which has really driven uh, the development of of sort of capacity and expertise uh, in in doing climate risk assessments for infrastructure in Canada. Um, there are so many more things that and some more tools available to senior governments through regulation, through funding uh, requirements, through disclosure and and infrastructure asset management requirements, and and support for those ultimately too um, that that they can do to help move this along. Fantastic! Thank you so much. And take us home, Vincent. Uh, well, I'll, I'll I'll finish with this thought. In that, um, one point that's often pops up in these types of discussions is: Do we have enough information in order to make decisions? And I think for the longest time, we actually have. And you know, at least pointed out what the federal government has done beyond climate lens in terms of climate data portals and the like. So I would say whether or not it's the tools, whether or not it's the expertise whether or not it's the data. Uh, we've made great strides in being able to have all the information and the tools handy in order to make strong, sound uh, climate risk decisions. Thank you to all our panelists. We would not be able to host important conversations like this one without industry support. With that in mind, I'd be remiss if I did not extend a huge thank you to today's podcast sponsor, Actual Media. Be sure to visit actualmedia.ca to learn more about the role the specialized media company plays in Canada's water, infrastructure, and environment sectors. Next time on Infrointelligence, we'll be talking about the very backbone of livable cities. You guessed it, public transit. Better transit means less congestion, faster commutes, more convenience, higher productivity, and lower emissions. But building modern transit systems takes decades of continuous planning and design to deliver. Join us next time to hear how governments at all levels continue to plan, build, and finance these public projects. Infra Intelligence podcasts are adapted from an ongoing webinar series hosted by Renew Canada magazine.